Good morning, good morning, good morning. Where's all my holy and righteous people that said strawberry jelly? Strawberry jelly. Yeah. Yeah, the rest of you will pray for you. I was at Quick Trip. I actually thought about this yesterday. I was at Quick Trip yesterday, and they had the, uh, the pre-made PB&J uh, pre-packaged things. Here's what was amazing to me. All of the grape sandwiches were still there. All of the strawberry sandwiches were gone. Stop making grape jelly, peanut butter, and jelly sandwiches. We have a church split. Well, good morning, good morning. It's so good to see you today. I want to ask you a question this morning. Uh, have you ever been around a child and that child came up to an adult figure and uh, uh, said something to the effect of, well, my mommy and daddy said that I could fill in the blank. And you heard what they said and you thought, I'm pretty sure no. Pretty sure that's not what they said. And you ever been in a situation like that? My kids pulled, I'll tell some funny stories as we go through this series, but I've had this happen to me a couple of times. And uh, here's the thing that I've begun to learn about myself is that kids are not the only ones who do that, by the way. Grown folk do it too. We just don't always have mommy and daddy to, to blame it on, to pin it on. And what happens a lot of times for a lot of people is they can, they can come to believe something um, and, 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 and take that and use it. Sometimes it's maliciously to kind of get what they want, how they want. And then sometimes they do it, you know, with all the best intentions, not really knowing that what they're using as the justification for what they're trying to do is actually totally off base. And kind of at the heart of this is, is the reason why we're jumping into a brand new series today called God Didn't Say That. Just like mom and daddy probably didn't say it was okay for you to go jump on the trampoline with scissors. There's some things that we're gonna dive into that people believe that God said, but that he didn't really say. Now, here's the deal. Uh, I think that we can all agree, regardless of whether or not we all agree about God, and if you're here today and you've got some questions or some doubts about God, man, can I just tell you you're in good company? Because there's a whole room full of people that at one stage or another, or even currently still, have some questions and some doubts and some struggles about who God is and how he operates and what he's all about. There's a reason why it's called faith. But regardless of whether or not we can agree on God, I believe the thing, one thing that we can agree on is that for almost everybody, what you believe dictates how you behave. Generally speaking, if you believe that something is a good decision, it will lead to a good outcome, then you will be inclined to behave in such a way that moves you in that direction. And conversely, if you believe that something is a bad idea, will lead to a bad outcome, then you will behave in such a way that it will lead you away from that thing. We know this is true, but here's the question that I have for us today. What happens when you believe something to be true that isn't, and then you act on it. What happens when you believe that something that you were told is true and that belief drives your behavior and you begin to behave in such a way that aligns with that belief, but the belief, the thing that you believed in is false. At best, you look silly. At worst, you will end up doing something that is harmful to yourself or to others. And so here's the deal. I, I, want, I want you to have the best information as possible because I want you to experience all of the fullness of God's blessings that he has in store for your life. And you can't receive that. You can't walk in that if you are walking to the beat of a wrong drum. 
So in this series, we're gonna look at five popular statements that people often say, and I'm gonna show you what is true and what is not true about it based on what God's word says. And here's the reason why, because believing these five popular untrue statements will lead you to do things that are either silly or potentially harmful. And so today we're going to look at and unpack one of the most popular statements that I've heard. We're going to have some fun as we go through this series. I'm going to tell you right now that one of the most challenging things about learning the Bible is unlearning some of the things you were taught about the Bible. And so we're going to, I'm sure we're going to be deconstructing some things as we go along. And so make sure that you come with pen and paper ready to take some notes. Here's the first popular statement that we're going to dive into in this series. This title of the message today is God helps those who help themselves. How many of you ever heard that statement before? God helps those who help themselves. This statement, if you've heard this, uh, is oftentimes used in the context where people are talking about somebody who appears to be lazy. Or it's a situation that I've heard it used in where uh, somebody looks at somebody else with a little bit of pity. They kind of look at me versus them and I kind of recognize I am where I am because I did what you didn't do, what you were unwilling to do. And, and, and because I did certain things to try to help myself, then praise God, bless the Lord, he done helped me. And if you would just help yourself a little bit more, then God would also help you. When you think about it, when you dive into it, at the root of it, there's a part of it that, it, that, that speaks to initiative. There's a part of it that speaks to hard work. There's a part of it that speaks to not being lazy. And, and in our American capitalistic society, there's a part of it that sounds like it rings true. Now listen, there are, there are flaws to every system and there are certainly flaws in our own system, but by and large, as a general rule of thumb, in an American capitalistic society, society, if you work hard, if you do good, if you stay out of trouble, then you can position yourself to uh, upgrade your station in life. The reason why there's a lot of people in a lot of places all across the globe that hear about America being the land of opportunity and risk life and limb to get here because there are opportunities that exist here that don't exist in other places. So when you hear this in our Americanized ears, there's a part of it that rings true. There's a part of it that sounds true. Basically, what it sounds like is that when we think about who God is and what we've come to learn about God, when we think about this statement, God helps those who help themselves, then basically the idea is that if I would just help myself a little bit, if I would take some personal responsibility, some hard work, show some initiative, then God will basically take the work that I'm doing and just turbocharge it so that I can get more of what I'm hoping for. But here is the problem. Well, let me, before I get there, let me, let me talk about a couple of other things. If we were to think about this statement, God helps those who help themselves, from a, if we were to think about it and twist it just a little bit, we could probably say that what is intended is that if God helps those who help themselves, then God doesn't help those who are lazy. And certainly if you've spent any time reading the Bible, then you've come across some verses where God talks about the values of diligence and hard work and initiative. Things like in Proverbs chapter 10 and verse four, when it says lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. It certainly sounds like what God is saying in his word, that if you're lazy, it ain't gonna work out so good. I ain't gonna help you. But if you work hard, if you're diligent with your hands, then God will bless that and he will bring wealth. But that's not exactly what God is saying here. 
What God is trying to get at is that he's wanting to help us to understand that, that initiative and hard work, those are important things, but it's not, a, it's not a take it to the bank kind of promise that God helps those who help themselves. The reality of it is, if you look at the full counsel of God's word, meaning if you look at the entirety of God's word and look at this statement, God helps those who helps themselves in context of everything else, you're gonna learn a couple things. Number one, you're gonna learn that this statement is not once recorded in the Bible. God never said that. And not only does God not say that explicitly, when you look at the entirety of the story that God has given us in the Bible, that that principle is, doesn't show up either. And so if God doesn't say this, and if this principle doesn't really echo in his word, then what is it that God does teach? Well, if you look at God's word, I believe that what you'll see is that there is a contrary statement that is more true and more accurate. And I believe that what is more true and what is more accurate is that generally speaking, those who help themselves usually end up hurt. Those who say, I'm just gonna do it. I'm gonna take matters into my own hands. I'm gonna do my own thing. I'm gonna pull myself up by my bootstraps by myself. Oftentimes, those people end up hurt. I wanna give you an example. We're going to be in 1 Samuel. We're going to be all kind of all over the place today. So if you can catch up, great. If not, we'll have the verses on the screen. But I want to talk today about the very first king of Israel, a man named Saul. Saul, in 1 Samuel chapter 10, is anointed by the, by the prophet Samuel. A prophet was somebody that was used by God to kind of speak to God's people on God's behalf. And so God's people wanted a king. And so God sent Samuel and said, listen, go find the king. There he is. He's Saul. Samuel anoints Saul as king. After about two years of being king, Saul goes, takes his 3,000 men and goes to a place called Gilgal to prepare for a military conflict with their arch rival, the Philistines. When Saul gets there, he realizes that he's going to have some issues because there's a whole lot of them dudes. But Samuel had instructed Saul, Saul, when you get to Gilgal, wait seven days and I will show up. And when I show up, I will offer the sacrifices to the Lord. Now I wanna time out here real quick because there's two things that you have to understand what's going on culturally. In this time, 1 Samuel chapter 10, the time of King Saul and King David, this is what historians call as, referred to as the Bronze Age. And there are some things that happen in the Bronze Age that when we look at it in our current age, we look back on it, it looks kind of weird, but, but there are still some things that remain the same. And one of those things that remain the same is that it's not uncommon, whether it was in the Bronze Age or whether it's today, it's not uncommon to find men of war, people of war, before they go into battle, they will do different rituals and different things calling out to whoever their respective religion or God that they worship and they will call out to that God and they're praying for God to uh, help them be safe and help them be victorious in the battle. Such was the case for the nation of Israel. And so what, what, uh, what Samuel told Saul is, I will come and offer the sacrifices, specifically two sacrifices that were to be offered. The first sacrifice was the burnt offering. All right, this is a sacrifice that was made before God that was seen uh, according to the rules and the regulations that God had established in the system of worship. It was what they would do to offer a sacrifice to basically cover their sins so that God would not look at them and see their sin, but God would see the burnt offering and it would be pleasing to God and it would position God to work favorably on behalf of the nation of Israel. 
The second sacrifice was the peace offering, and it was an offering that was offered in order to show gratitude to God. So before they would go into battle, what the Jews would often do is they would offer a sacrifice to cover their sin and a sacrifice to show God how grateful we are. Here's the second thing that you have to understand. God had made it very, very clear in his law throughout the book of Leviticus, that there is a certain group of people that can offer these sacrifices. In fact, that every other person who doesn't fit into this very small category of people who offers these sacrifices would be considered an abomination or a radical, egregious violation to God and his law. And the only group of people that could offer these sacrifices were the priests. And whether or not you were a priest was determined by what family you were born into. And so... Samuel was a priest. Samuel was qualified to come and offer the sacrifice. But here was the problem. Saul was standing on a hilltop with his 3,000 men and he was looking at the entire army of the Philistines and he freaked out. You would be too if you were standing on a hilltop with 3,000 men and you saw what 1 Samuel 13, 5 says, then the Philistines gathered together to fight the Israelites, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand, which is on the seashore in multitude. Saul, for seven days, has been standing on this hilltop with his 3,000 men. And Saul's not the only one who looks out and sees all those jokers out there. And Saul and his men begin to freak out a little bit. Day one goes by, day two goes by, they're waiting patiently, day three, day four, day five, day six, all the way to day seven. When it gets to day seven and Samuel hasn't showed up yet, Saul begins to take action. He begins to take some initiative. He looks around and see his men. He's concerned that they're going to defect, that they're going to run away. He's concerned that they're going to be scared and afraid. They're concerned that they're not going to believe that God is with them and God is for them in this battle. And so Saul looks around and says, man, forget this. Y'all bring me the stuff. I'll make the sacrifice. Now, is it really that big of a deal? I mean, at the end of the day, Saul's king. So isn't it within his rights to choose to do some things, especially if it's with a good intention and a good motive to be on behalf of his men who were getting ready to lay their life on the line to go to battle? Well, the answer to that question is it depends. It depends on what God has already said. And Saul made a terrible mistake when he chose to disobey God. He chose to make these sacrifices himself. And the story continues. Samuel shows up right after the sacrifices are offered. Samuel goes, Saul, what did you do? And Saul basically said, what had happened was, is all of them and very little few of us, and you weren't here. So I just, I just took care of it. And Saul hastily taking initiative and taking matters into his own hands, not only violated what God's prophet Samuel had told him, but he had also violated the law of God. And in so doing, God responds by telling Samuel to tell Saul, Saul, what you have done is not okay. And matter of fact, it is so not okay that I am removing my hand of blessing from you as the king of Israel. And not only am I removing my hand of blessing from you from no longer being the king of Israel, the monarchy is no longer going to stay in your bloodline. None of your children will ever sit on the throne as kings of Israel. Well, what is this teaching us? Is it teaching us that God is against initiative? No. God isn't against initiative. 
God's not against initiative at all. But what God is against is he is against disobedience. He doesn't have a problem with Saul looking around and going, we got to do something. He's got a problem that he chose to do something and take matter to his own hands when God had already told him the right way to do it. Why does God have an issue with disobedience? I'll tell you why. Because disobedience demonstrates a lack of trust in God. Every single time that you and I choose to be disobedient to God and whatever it is that God has told you to do or not told you to do, whatever that is, whatever God's word has said, every time that we are disobedient, what we're saying is, is God, you don't know what you're talking about. I can do it better than you. And so God takes issue with disobedience. Now, I want to help contrast this by helping you see another leader who went into another military conflict who chose to respond very differently, a leader by the name of Joshua. Now, if you don't know Joshua, Joshua was the dude who, after Moses died, he let, you know, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go, the 10 plagues, crossing the Red Sea, 40 years in the wilderness, uh, the 10 commandments, all that stuff. Moses dies and Joshua becomes the next leader for the nation of Israel. And Joshua leads the Israel into the promised land. And as Joshua begins his job, he begins his role as the new leader over the nation of Israel, God issues Joshua a remarkable promise that is not only applicable to him in that situation, it is one of the few promises in the Old Testament that are universally true then and today to both the Jews and the Gentiles. Most of the promises that we read in the Old Testament are exclusive to the Jews and not necessarily connected to us as non-Jews or Gentiles. But this is one of the promises that universally apply. This is what God told Joshua in Joshua chapter one and verse eight. He says, this book of the law, which was basically what he had for the Bible, it was the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, or referred to as the Pentateuch. Um, that was his Bible. And so God says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. Joshua, take, take what you have that is my word that I've given to you and meditate on it. Study it, become familiar with it, get to know it, know what it says. Don't let it depart from your mouth, meaning don't issue decrees and make decisions that, that cause you to separate yourself from what I have already given you. That you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then... You will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. God's issuing a remarkable promise. In other words, what he's saying is, is that God promises blessings to those who obediently follow him. Now, some of these blessings are material and some, there's certainly a, a, a whole host of people that experience financial material blessings from God, but God rarely ever promises material blessings, but he does often promise blessings that could be measured by things that can never be valued by, by money. He promises spiritual blessings like freedom and peace and forgiveness and to be able to see reconciliation and restoration to things that are broken and busted. And so Joshua takes this encouragement at the beginning of his outset as a leader of the nation of Israel. And when we get to Joshua chapter six, we see that he now is faced with the responsibility of leading Israel into battle. 
I want you to see how he responds differently than the way that King Saul did. It's an interesting battle plan that God lays out in Joshua chapter six and verse two. It says, and the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand. It's king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go around the city once. This you shall do for six days. So six days, you and the men of war walk around the city one time and then go home. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark, but the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when when they make a long blast with a ram's horn and when you hear the sound of the trumpet that all the people shall shout with a great shout, then the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up, every man straight before him. Joshua, here's the battle plan. Now, in order for you to understand this a little bit, you kind of, if you've seen Lord of the Rings, I want you to think Lord of the Rings just a little bit. Jericho is a moderate sized city with a, with a huge wall, several stories tall. Matter of fact, there's two walls, an outer wall and an interior wall that's several stories tall and 15 to 20 feet thick. And the entire army of Jericho is inside on the wall waiting to respond to the attack. Think Lord of the Rings and the orcs and, the, and the, all that stuff, okay? Typically, the way these battles were won were not by taking down the city walls. It was won by creating a blockade and it was a long drawn out battle. Weeks and months until they basically starved them out. They had to open the gates or die of starvation. But God says, Joshua, if you listen to me, I'm gonna give you a different plan and it's gonna work a little bit different. So here's what I need you to do. You and all the army walk around the city one time and then y'all just go home. Just wave at them. They're gonna look at you. Peace. We going home. We got, we got tired. Then on the seventh day, Joshua, here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to walk around one time. I want you to walk around seven times. And after the seventh time, I want you to, I want you to tell the priest, um, get, their, get their horns ready and then you're gonna blow the horns really long. And at the end of the horn, all of you are going to stand and do this. Ha! And the walls are going to come down. Imagine being Joshua, who was incredibly accomplished as a man of war, by the way, and going, I mean, that's one strategy. Or we can take our grappling hooks and toss them up and climb up because we've been doing CrossFit in the desert and we climb up and we just slash and seal and buy and boom. And then we just take care of it that way. That wouldn't make more sense to Joshua because that's what he's accustomed to. But God says, Joshua, don't do it. That trust me, trust me, Joshua. And Joshua does. And Joshua trusts God, he follows God's battle plan, and not only does the nation of Israel defeat Jericho, but they do so in record time, in just one week, in a battle that historically, we know these kind of battles would have taken months. Why did Joshua succeed when Saul did not? Was it because Joshua helped himself? No. Did Joshua have to demonstrate some leadership and some initiative? Yes. What is the difference between the two? The difference is, is that God promises blessings to those who obediently follow him. Obedience is key in God's economy. 
So let's come back to the original statement. God helps those who helps themselves. So what have we learned? Well, we've learned that there is a little bit of truth in the statement that God does help people, but the statement in and of itself is faulty. Yes, God encourages hard work and initiative, and yes, God blesses obedience, but this does not mean that God helps those who help themselves, which leads then to the next obvious question, at least for me, as I was working through this, well, then who, who does God help? I mean, if I was God and I'm looking at the people that I'm going to choose to help, the people that are on their grind, the people that are working hard, the people that are doing their best, the people that are about it and taking initiative and working hard, those would be the people that I would help. But is that who God says he's going to help? Well, thankfully, Jesus gives us a little bit of insight as to who God helps In Luke chapter four, verse 16, it says, so he, that's Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And then he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Now I'm gonna pause here and give you a little bit, uh, a little bit more here, historical insight. The the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament was uh, written by a man that God had identified as a prophet. Um, Not only was he a prophet to the nation of Israel that, that would speak on behalf of God to the nation of Israel, God also allowed Isaiah and some others who recorded their, their, what God showed them in the Old Testament, uh, in the first half of your Bible, they recorded some things that hadn't yet happened, but one day would happen. And several times the prophet Isaiah wrote of these, these prophecies that, that, foretold of God's redeemer, God's rescuer, God's Messiah that would come and rescue Israel, establish Israel as a powerful, prominent, and prosperous nation, a king that would lead them that no other king could compare with, that no other nation could compete with. And in the midst of writing about this Messiah, One of the things that Isaiah wrote is what Jesus is getting ready to read. He's walked into the synagogue with all of the religious leaders who have dedicated their life to studying things like the stuff that Isaiah wrote about. Jesus opens the scroll and he reads this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and everybody was looking at him. Everybody's waiting with bated breath now because all of these people are familiar with this prophecy. They're also familiar that there is some hubbub around this Jesus character who has been performing miracles who's been doing these crazy things that, that, that they don't believe in because they've not seen it for themselves. And the ones that have seen it have a hard time understanding how it's possible that a man could do that. Jesus puts hands the scroll back to the attendant. He comes and sits down. And while he's seated there, realizing that everyone is quiet, you can hear a pin drop. And they're looking at him. Then he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now this is a catastrophic, monumental, amazing moment in the history of time because this is Jesus walking into the synagogue telling all of the religious leaders, I am the Messiah. 
I am the one that you have spent thousands of years telling generation to generation to generation about. I am the fulfillment of everything good that God has been promising to the nation of Israel. I am he, I am the one. And instantaneously, all of the religious leaders would have flipped their lid and lost their mind. They would have shouted things like, how can you? You're just a man, blasphemy. And, 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 and they would have, they would have uh, accused him of violating God's word and God's rules and God's laws. If you and I would have been there in the conversation, we would have joined all of that as well. But I believe that if we were there in the conversation, we would have walked out of the synagogue at the end of the day and we would have walked together towards our homes and we would have, man, can you believe what this Jesus guy said, that he is the Messiah? How dare he? But if in the midst of the conversation, if you and I could get past the shock of the declaration that he is the Messiah we would have been able to see his, the revelation of the heart of God. Because in this, Jesus reveals who God helps. Did you catch it? The poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the blind, the oppressed. You see, for you and me, if we're theirs, we're religious leaders, we're going, man, how can God help them? If God's going to help anybody, surely wouldn't God look at us? We've dedicated our lives to studying the scrolls and the Torah and the law and the Pentateuch and committed ourselves to the ways of Moses. We've lived purity and we've lived with integrity and we've done all the things as best we can to live with righteousness and holiness. We've created all these extra rules so that we can't be uh, tainted by the regular common people of the world. If God was going to help anybody, wouldn't God choose to help us? No, 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 but that's not what God said. God said he was gonna help the poor, the brokenhearted, the oppressed. And if you and I were having this conversation, we would have said, really? God's gonna help them? They can't even do anything. They're totally miserable and helpless. And if Jesus were to pass by while we're having that conversation, he would have leaned in and he said, now you're getting it. You see, what God is trying to get across to us today is that God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who are helpless. Now, we might hear this and go, oh, that sounds nice. Isn't that so nice that God wants to help the poor and the needy? That's so good. I'm so glad that God wants to do that. It'll cause you to have your heart filled with compassion potentially when you drive by somebody that's homeless. It might cause you when you stop for a second, you see something on your Instagram feed of somebody who's less fortunate than you, go, oh God, would you help them? If you're not careful, it could lead you to a point of such pride that instead of having compassion, you would look on people with pity and go, wow, sucks to suck. At least it's not me. <laughs> I'm so glad I did what I did so that God could help me to get where I am so that I'm not like them. And I just gotta be honest with you, God has challenged me this week as I've been preparing this to ask myself the question, how often have I in the midst of living in my American life and my suburban reality and my 
house and my wife and my kids and my job and my things? Have I become guilty of relying upon my job status, my financial situation, or my relationship status to be as the source of my safety and my security and my hope? God began to challenge me this week. Jernigan, when was the last time that you got past the self-delusion and the self-deception and realized you don't get it? You are the poor one. You are the brokenhearted. You are the captive, the blind, and the oppressed. I'm just wondering today if this is challenging or convicting to anybody else that as God's word is being proclaimed to you today, that the spirit of God might bring a sense of conviction upon you like he did me. Where you've become to rely on things that in the scope of eternity matter not. And you have begun to rely on what is a false sense of hope and a false sense of security. God led me to another passage in his word this week. And I want you to understand that as I read this, I'm not angry with you. It's not anger. Um, I want you to understand that God's not angry with you. Instead, I believe that God recorded this part of his word, Jesus's words, that are filled with love and compassion and concern. that are pregnant with a sense of urgency for the people who proclaim to love Jesus, the people who proclaim to follow Jesus, to wake up from the sleep of self-deception and delusion that the enemy has lulled us to sleep with, with the lullabies of 401ks and promotions and bank accounts and homes and relationships and marriages. that it would serve as a wake-up call for anyone whose relationship with Jesus has never gone past the convenience of knowing in Christ I'm not going to hell, but have not gotten to the point in Christ where you have surrendered all of your life to his lordship and his rule. Where you have begun to call out to God and say, well, that's one way to do it. But I kind of like my way better. I want you to hear what Jesus says in Revelation chapter three. And I want to read this to you today from the message translation. I believe it provides just a little bit different perspective. This is not Jesus speaking to people who are outside of the church, by the way. This is not Jesus speaking to unbelievers or people who aren't yet Christians. This is Jesus speaking to Christians, people in the church. And hear what the word of your Lord says. I know you inside and out and find little to my liking. You're not cold. You're not hot. Far better to be either cold or hot. You are stale. You're stagnant. 
And you make me want to vomit. You brag, saying, I'm rich. I got it made. I need nothing from anyone. I'm self-made. Look at what I built. But you're oblivious that in fact you are pitiful. You're a pitiful, blind beggar, threadbare and homeless. Here's what I want you to do. Buy your gold for me, gold that's been through the refiner's fire, then you'll be rich. Buy your clothes from me, clothes designed in heaven. You've gone around half naked long enough and buy medicine for your eyes from me so that you can see, really see. What he's saying here is stop relying on the work of your own hands for all of the things that you find your security in and come to me and trust me. Commit your ways to me. Follow me, surrender to me and allow the things that I give you that may or may not be of more financial value than what you could get for yourself but will have far more value when it comes to affecting your life. Then he says, the people I love, the people who have called on me for salvation, the Jesus people, I call to account. He's saying, I'm I'm holding you accountable. I prod and correct and guide so that they'll live at their best. Because whatever you can acquire and attain with the work of just your own hands doing it your own way, no matter how good it is, will never be as good as what comes from the hand of God when you walk in obedience to him. About face, turn around and run after God. Today, Jesus is calling out to all of us but especially to those of us who are prone to be self-reliant. Those of us who are prone to be the masters of our own domain. Today, Jesus is calling out to those of us who are able to accomplish much in our own ability that would lead us to a place of sitting in our comfortable situations and looking down upon others with pity. He's calling out to those of us who are quick to lift ourselves up in pride and say, see, God help me because I help myself. Now get yourself up, pull your bootstraps up, stop being lazy and get your lazy butt off the couch. Do what I did so that you can be blessed by God the way that I was. And I believe that God is calling us to realize that apart from him, every single thing that we have is completely meaningless. And that only the things of value are the things that come as a direct response of the blessing he gives as we follow him in obedience. My prayer for you today is that you would realize in a fresh new way that you need to surrender to God. How do we do this? Jesus tells us. He says, look at me. Stop looking at your world and your accomplishments and your accolades. Stop looking at your Instagram feed. Stop looking for the praise and the words of affirmation from other people that define your sense of worth and your identity and your value. Stop looking to other people to be your security and your source of hope. He says, look 
at me. Because I stand at the door and I'm knocking. And if you would hear my call and open the door, I will come in right down and sit down to supper with you. Conquerors will sit alongside me at the table, just as I, having conquered, took the place of honor at the side of my father. That's my gift to the conquerors. He's saying, if you really want to conquer, if you really want to overcome, it's not done through self-determination or grit or hard work. Those things are important, but they're secondary to walking in humble submission and obedience to our God. And so what is your next step? Well, for those of you that have a relationship with Jesus, that have been walking with Jesus, your next step is to realize that the hope of heaven isn't confined to the accolades of earth. And that the hope of heaven is not just knowing that we're not gonna go to hell. We just, we just barely skated by. Our butts are a little hot because we kind of slid right over. But the hope of heaven is that the more you surrender to God, the more God helps you. The more you live in submission to him, the more that God comes and goes, how can I help you if you're weary and heavy laden? I wanna give you rest. If you're walking through the fires of life, God said, listen, when you walk through the fires, you won't be burned because I'm gonna be with you. The promise of heaven is not just salvation and skipping hell. It's the hope of knowing that God is with us every moment and every day and is readily available to help us when we surrender to him. And if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ for salvation, you've never experienced what it means to be made new, you don't know what this thing that I'm talking about is, the hope of heaven, then be encouraged by God's word in Romans chapter five and verse eight. When he said that God demonstrated his own love towards us, that while we were still sinners, while we were still helpless, Christ died. Can I let you in on a little secret today? The entrance exam to heaven is not passed by self-will or determination. The entrance exam to heaven is not passed by saying, look what I did. The entrance exam to heaven is passed only through admitting defeat. Why? Because God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps the helpless. And God waits for us to reach the end of ourselves when we realize we can't do it anymore. We declare, God, I need you. And God says, I know. I've just been waiting for you to know. God helps those who are helpless. Why? Because God always runs to help those who reach out to him. That's who our God is. At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus, one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, text the word FAITH to 816-203-4444.
816-203-1835. Again, that's the word faith to 816-203-1835. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you've found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening.